Please turn once again to the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. I hope you've not grown weary with me saying that. Lord willing, next week I'll say something a bit different. (laughs) Not much, but a bit. Acts chapter 11. The last half of this chapter records the birth of the church in Antioch of Syria. That's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem where the preaching of the Gospel began. It was there in Jerusalem that the risen Lord Jesus commissioned His 11 disciples to take the Gospel, the good news of salvation, to the ends of the earth. However, it was not the apostles who first brought the Gospel to Antioch. Rather, it was those Christians who were living in Jerusalem, who were scattered because of the great persecution that arose against the church. And these folks went as far as Antioch, and it says they preached the Lord Jesus to the Hellenists, or the Greeks. They went as far as Antioch, and verse 21 tells us, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, and turned to the Lord. Then, of course, when the mother church in Jerusalem heard this news, they immediately dispatched Barnabas, a good, godly man, full of the Holy Spirit, to go up to Antioch and check things out. And when he arrived, it says he was glad with what he saw. What did he see? Well, we're told in verse 23 that he saw the grace of God. We noted when we looked at that verse that the grace of God is is not something that you can actually see with your eyes. That is, it's not something tangible that you can see with your eyes or touch and feel with your hands. It's God's gracious hidden work in the heart of a person. However, though you cannot see it, it's also something that you cannot hide. The effects of the grace of God in the heart of a man will be seen. And one of the clearest effects or signs of a true work of grace in the heart is the sincere love they have for other Christians. Jesus taught His disciples on the night in which He was betrayed. There in the upper room, He said, By this will all men know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. What an important truth in the Scripture. And Jesus taught this again and again. And His disciples taught this again and again. In 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not no God. For, he says, God is love. You see, when God saves a person from their sins, He not only saves them from guilt and damnation, He transforms the sinner into His own image and likeness. This transformation takes place immediately upon conversion. And it's pervasive throughout the life of the believer. Not perfectly in this life, though. 
You see, he continues throughout his life to struggle and to fight against inward remaining sin and corruption. And yet it is still true, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, 4, that that even your old friends will think it's something strange has happened to you. Something strange. You don't like to do the things you once loved to do. You see, a Christian begins to hate things he once loved and love things he once hated. You remember in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when Hopeful is telling his fellow pilgrim Christian about his conversion to Christ. And he says that when he finally understood that I must look for righteousness in his person, that is, in the person of Christ, and for satisfaction for my sins by his blood, and that he did what he did in obedience to his Father's law and submitting to the penalty was not for himself, but for him who will accept it for salvation and be thankful. And then he goes on to speak of the immediate effect when he realized this, that I'm saved not by what I do, but by what he has done. He said, and now my heart was full of joy, mine eyes full of tears, and my affections running over with love to the name, people, and ways of Jesus Christ. The name of Christ. He loves the name of Christ. Before, it was perhaps a swear word or or perhaps it was something that he never even wanted to consider. Didn't like to talk about. Now, that's all he wants to talk about. And the people of God, maybe he despised them and probably did in some measure. Didn't want to be around the people of God or if if he's around them, he didn't want them to act like the people of God. But now his heart and his affections were running over to the people of Jesus Christ. That's something that happens in a Christian when he's converted to Christ. This is what happened in Antioch. These new converts not only loved the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a newfound love for other Christians. Whoever they were. Wherever they were. And their love was not in word only but in deed and in truth. In fact, James says, What is a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he goes on to use the example, if your brother is naked and destitute of daily food and you say, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things they need for the body, what does it profit? And so, what we'll see in the very closing verses in chapter 11 is that these Christians in Antioch loved other Christians and it wasn't in word only. It was in deed and in truth. And so would you follow with me as I begin reading in verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief 
to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so here we see these Christians heard of a need and they determined to do something about it. And so what I want to look at as we look at these verses is, first of all, we want to look at what they heard and then secondly, what they determined to do. Thirdly, what they actually did. And then we want to just ask, well, why? Why did they do all of this? What was their motivation? So first of all, what they heard. We read in verse 28 that they heard that there was going to be this great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, in verse 27, uh, Luke tells us from whom they heard this dire prediction. It wasn't just some doomsday uh, people that are always predicting things. It wasn't just some uh, fanatic out here or there predicting things that are going to happen. It wasn't from the experts or the scientists or the meteorologists. It was from these prophets. He says, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, this may sound strange to hear of prophets in the church, uh, but we need to remember that the gift of prophecy was still active during the time of the apostles. You might react, what do you mean? It was active. Why isn't it still active today? Well, just give me a moment and we'll talk about this. But we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, particularly to his church. He gave some, Paul says, to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the church, Paul tells us back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, has been built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Now, what is the foundation? The foundation is the, the structure you build first. You lay the foundation and then you build the structure of the house or the building. The foundation of a building is laid in the beginning of the process. And prophets, along with apostles, were part of that foundation. We don't believe that apostles are part of the gift of the church today, though we benefit immensely from that foundation that was laid. We are teaching and reading and studying the works of the apostles, the the teaching of the apostles. That's what Christ did. He sent out the 12 apostles, or 11, and then he brought Paul in as well to be that foundation of the church. And we can see a great need for a prophet in those days, especially. The church at that time did not yet have one single book or page of the New Testament Scriptures. The Apostle Paul had not written one of his epistles. Well, then how would the mind and the will of Christ be known to the church? It would be through the the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Now, a prophet of God, Peter describes him in 2 Peter chapter 1, was a holy man who spoke 
as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what a prophet did. He was an oracle of God. He was the mouthpiece of God Himself. When they spoke, God was speaking. And notice here in verse 27, uh, or verse 26, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be this great famine in the land. It was through the Holy Spirit He spoke. Now, with the completion of the New Testament canon of Scripture, we no longer need apostles and prophets to continue giving ongoing revelation. You see, the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament are abundantly sufficient for everything we need. God has given us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. So, this is where they learned this news of a famine coming upon the whole world. Uh, it says, and notice, it says these prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, here's another example of the concern and the care of the Jerusalem church for their Gentile brothers and sisters all the way up there in Antioch. They sent them these prophets. And then it says in verse 28 that one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be this, uh, this great famine. Matthew Henry said, and what he said, that is the prophet, was not of himself, nor a fancy of his own, nor an astronomical prediction, nor a conjecture upon the present workings of second causes and so forth, just gauging, looking at the world around. But it says he signified it by the spirit, the spirit of prophecy, that there should be a famine. You see, this was not a good guess. This was a word from God. And that's important. But notice also uh, that it says uh, at the end of verse 28 about this famine, Luke goes on to say, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. This is how you knew ultimately that this prophecy was truly from God. Because it actually happened. This is how they knew that these prophets were sent by God. It came to pass. You think, well, okay, prophecies are supposed to come to pass. But a lot of so-called prophecies, if you keep your ears open in our day, do not come to pass. Men who think they're prophets will say things that never come to pass. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, the Bible gives us some very sobering words about prophecy and prophets. He says this, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. <laughs> if you applied that standard to the prophets in our day, a lot of them would be put to death. And then he goes on to say, God goes on to say in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 18, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, he says, if the thing does not happen or does not come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. 
The prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him. No matter how fiery he is, no matter how uh, much fire is in his eyes, don't be afraid of him. He's not of God. But that's how they came to know of this great famine. That was the, the occasion for their benevolence. And so what did they determine to do? The second thing, what they determined, verse 29 says, And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. The natural response of men would have been to hoard up for themselves. They got a word from God, there's going to be this great famine in the land. Selfishness is the natural response of a sinful man or woman or boy or girl. You want to think about yourself first. That's why raising children is so challenging. And what do you have to try to teach them? You have to try to teach little children to share. Don't be so selfish because that's what they are by nature. Think about themselves. I'm my, me, mine. That's their word. The first words they know, if they don't know how to say them, they know how to live them. Everything is about themselves. And so uh, they could have used all kinds of excuses. They could have said, well, there's a famine coming upon the whole world. We'll be in the same spot that they are now. Maybe it was going to hit Jerusalem first or because of their circumstances and condition, they would receive the, 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 the raw end of the deal. But maybe we'll be in the same spot sooner or later. So we need to prepare ourselves and take care of our own. But what these Christians did, they went against their natural tendency of selfishness and they took up an offering to sin for relief to the saints or the brethren in Jerusalem. And Jesus said that if anyone, anyone would be his disciple, he must do what? Deny himself. That's the first thing he must Deny yourself. Oh, what does that mean to deny yourself? Does it mean to lacerate your body with, uh, with rocks or, or knives or something? Or put yourself through some extreme pain? No, that's not self-denial. The pain that's involved in self-denial is just that, denying yourself. Deny yourself. That is what you want. What will comfort you and help you and aid you. You deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Him. And then notice, it says, the disciples, each according to His ability. You see, God... Uh, God doesn't require you to give more than you have. And He knows that we're not all going to be able to give in the same way or the same amount. God is a God of equity, of true equity. Even in the Old Testament sacrifices, God required each family to bring a sacrifice, but not each family had to bring the same sacrifice. It would have been too expensive for some to bring a heifer or, or something of that nature and so God had various sacrifices that they could bring according to their ability. You remember in, in the New Testament when Jerry and, uh, Joseph and Mary, they came to the temple to offer their son and have him circumcised. 
they brought two turtle doves that indicated that they were of the poorer class. But isn't that so gracious of God? He, he doesn't require them to bring what they don't have, but to bring according to their ability. Now, notice he does tell them to bring, but to bring according to their ability. You remember when Jesus was observing where they would bring their offerings and saw all these religious people and the Pharisees bringing their offerings and so forth in a very ostentatious way. And then the widow comes and she gives her might, uh, that little pen, penance. Uh, uh, it's such, such a little thing, but it was all that she had. And Jesus commended her saying that what she gave was more than them all. Certainly it was even more pleasing to God. As someone said, it's not the amount of the check that matters, it's it's the amount of the balance. (laughs) That's what really matters. Well, she only gave a little, but she gave all that she had. And so here they were determined they're going to take up an offering and send to the saints in Jerusalem. Their hearts are going out to them. We'll look later at the motives and reasons they may have had why they did this, but this is what they determined to do. So that's what they determined. Now let's look at what they actually did. Verse 30, it says, This they also did. (laughs) This they also did. You see, they actually did what they determined to do. (laughs) Yeah, That might sound, well, of course. But there's no of course about it. We don't always do that, do we? It's one thing to determine something. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to have the intention. It's another thing to fulfill that intention. I need to start eating better. I need to eat more healthy than I do. And I think I truly want to. You may disagree. But this past Friday, I took a salmon filet out of the freezer and I put it in the fridge to thaw it out and to cook it for lunch. It's still in the fridge. (laughs) I tried to explain to my wife that at least my intentions were good. (laughs) But, you know, my wife, and that didn't go over so well. But there, I had good intentions. I just didn't carry it out, did I? Well, this was later on, but in 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 the New Testament, the Corinthian church had determined to take up a collection again for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Paul was coming their way and he was going to collect it when he came. Their desire, intention, and intention was remarkable, even inspiring to the other churches. In 2 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul wrote this. In fact, just turn over. We have a, 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 I'm moving along kind of quickly here, but turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about giving. If you don't like giving, maybe you should just tear these pages right out of your Bible. Because Paul is talking about giving and he's talking about it in a, in a wonderful way, rejoicing. Uh, giving, I know, can be hammered on people and seems like that's all preachers talk about. But we need to remember that it is a good thing. It's what Paul calls the grace 
of giving. We sang about the grace of giving. But here in chapter 9, Paul wrote in verse 1, Now concerning the ministering to the saints. He's talking about ministering in this tangible way of taking up a collection and sending to these poor saints in Jerusalem. He says, It's superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Wow, this is wonderful. They, uh, they were uh, determined to give, and they were going to take up a big offering and so forth. Uh, their example to other churches had actually stirred them up to give. And yet the very reason Paul is bringing this up at all, he says it's superfluous, but he knew that it was still necessary. The reason he was bringing it up because they had not yet carried out their intention. And Paul didn't want them to be embarrassed or look bad in front of all the other churches. And he needed to stir them up again. And you see, this is part of that remaining sin and corruption I was talking about. Uh, the flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We still have to deal with sin in our own hearts. We may want to do this, and we're determined we're going to do this. Like Paul said, that he, he was determined, and yet, what did he find? He found sin remaining in him. So, they, they, they wanted to do this. Paul needed to stir them up again. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses the example of the generosity of the churches in Macedonia to stir them up. And he goes on to speak of this, uh, these Macedonians, what they have done. And, and uh, now there's two things that's very interesting about this, that he uses the Macedonians as an example. The churches in Macedonia were inspired to give by the zeal of the Corinthian church. <laughs> they were giving, but it's because of your zeal, your determination. And secondly, the Macedonian churches were poor themselves. That's what makes their giving all the more remarkable. They didn't give out of their abundance, but they gave out of their poverty. Look back in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3. For I bear witness, he's speaking of the Macedonians, I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. They counted this an honor to help out with these saints in Jerusalem. In other words, they dug down deep into their pockets to give. They counted it a privilege and the church in Antioch was doing the same thing. They did, though, what they determined to do. Notice again, if you'll go back to Acts chapter 11, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church carried out what they intended to do. Good to have the intention. It's good to be determined. But it's even better when you carry it out. 
Now, why? Why did they do this? Why they did what they did? What motivated them to give so spontaneously, so sacrificially, so promptly, so generously? Well, I have four reasons. First of all, there is an inseparable connection between true saving faith and good works. Now, we are not saved by our good works. Let's be crystal clear about that. Your good works couldn't save you, as Jonathan Edwards said, any more than uh, a spider's web could stop a falling rock. You can't be saved by your good works. They are as filthy rags in God's sight. It would be an insult to offer those good works to God thinking that you could buy your way into heaven. And yet so many people think that very thing. They think if they give to the church, they're going to go to heaven. That's so absurd. They have no idea of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of man. One of our hymns says, No alms nor deeds that I have done can for a single sin atone. To Calvary alone I flee, O God Be merciful to me. You see, we can only be saved by pleading the pure, unmerited favor of God. That God would be merciful to us. But there is this connection between true saving faith and good works. We are saved, the Bible says, not by our works, but unto good works. Good works are the fruit of and the evidence of a true and lively faith. That's why the passage I read earlier that that faith without works is dead. The Reformers put it this way, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by good works. So it grew out of their faith in Christ. And these Christians in Antioch, they were first called Christians in Antioch, but they were not Christians in name only, but in deed and in truth. The second motivation was perhaps because they understood the implications of the reality of their inclusion in the family of God. Remember, Gentiles, they were separated from Israel. They were separated from the covenants. They were without hope and without God in the world. They were the ultimate outsiders. And yet in Christ, they have now been brought into the family of God. They're now part of the body of Christ. They who were once afar off have been brought near. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, all, all of you Gentiles who put your faith in Christ, all of you Jews have put your faith in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greeks, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These Christians in Antioch, They understood now they were all part of the body of Christ. And that has implications. That when one member suffers, they all suffer. 
And when one member is honored, they all rejoice. You see, that's like the body. The body, when one member suffers, the other members come to their aid. You know how when you slam your thumb with a hammer, you don't say, well, that's just the thumb. <laughs> that's not the rest of the body. No, that's part of the body. And the rest of the body comes right to its aid. You have one hand grabs your thumb and squeezes it. <laughs> and you stick it in your mouth and you start sucking it. <laughs> Your whole body is working together. And that's what happens. And that's what was happening here. Al Mohler points out that they were wonderfully united. Here is the predominantly Gentile church helping out the church in Jerusalem, which was Jewish. And they were all one in Christ Jesus. You see, they were all just Christians. They weren't Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. They were Christians. And that's how it ought to be in Christ's church. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. You see, we're one in Christ. We have so much in common with other believers that we have actually more in common with them than we do with even our own family, unless they're saved as well. But perhaps there was another motive. Perhaps they were motivated out of thankfulness. They had received so much from this church in Jerusalem, hadn't they? Uh, They had received spiritual blessings. And it was only right for them to show their appreciation through physical, tangible means. I mean, you think of it. Yes, I said it wasn't the Jerusalem church that sent people up there but it was these folks who were from the Jerusalem church who heard the gospel, who believed, and now they're up there telling them what they've heard and what they've believed. And so the Jerusalem church had an effect in that way. And then also, the Jerusalem church sent up Barnabas, one of their finest, to check things out and to help them. And he ends up staying there a whole year teaching them along with Saul of Tarsus teaching them the Word of God. And so they had benefited from the Word of God. And the Bible teaches that if we benefit from spiritual things, uh, by way of spiritual things, we shouldn't be afraid or, or hesitant to share in physical things, in carnal means. And so they were motivated, I believe, out of thankfulness to help this church that it helped them so much in such a far greater way. It's one thing to give to someone financially. It's another thing to give to them spiritually. They have now an inheritance eternal reserved in heaven for them because they had the Gospel preached to them and they believed. Or perhaps they were stirred up by the good examples that were set before them. We learn so much by way of example, don't we? Things are often better caught than taught, we're told. And that's true in a certain measure. Things do need to be taught, but you can catch things in the example of others. And seeing the good example of others can and ought to instruct and inspire us to follow their example. Now, I'm sure you, you, they heard these, uh, these Christians in Antioch that they had heard what had happened in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured down and, 
and uh, 3,000 were saved in one day. I'm sure they heard what Luke writes of in chapter 2, verse 44. Now all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. What an example. As there was this need, so they were coming together to provide for that need. I'd like you, though, to turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. The blessings keep coming. The church keeps growing. In verse 32, Luke tells us, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceedings of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Oh, they had a living example among them. Barnabas was like this. Now, I doubt if Barnabas tooted his own horn, but I'm sure they figured it out or heard what a good, gracious man he was and what a good example for them. And they follow that example. The Bible says that we're to mark those who walk after the pattern you have in us, Paul says. That is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings me to my final uh, motivation was the supreme example that was set by the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there was someone who looked out, not for his own interests, but for the interests of others, it was the Son of God. We could even go back to the love of the Father in sending the Son, for the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, it wasn't love, a sentimental love of warm wishes, but it was a love in action. He loved the world and He gave His only begotten Son. There's that sacrificial love, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. But then when we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says it over and over in so many ways. But the one that's, that came out to my mind was the words of the Apostle Paul of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he says to the Corinthians to stir them up. He says, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. That is in heaven, before he came to this earth, he was rich. The angels adoring him, enjoying the fellowship of the, of the triune God. Though he was rich, yet he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Oh, what benevolence. 
What grace. What amazing grace. That saved a wretch like me. He saw me plunged in deep distress. He flew to my relief. For me He bore the shameful cross and carried all my grief. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater example of self-sacrificing love than His. And John tells us in 1 John 3, and we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. But this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see the connection. Look what He did for us. We ought to do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His brothers. He lays it down. He's willing to. Now, you'll probably not be called upon to actually give your life for your fellow Christian. But there's a lot of other things you could give. A lot of other things. You could give your time. You could give your money. You could help them in this or help them encourage them. Be like Barnabas and encourage or something to help lift them up and help them on their way. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because that's the rule. You don't miss church. You can't. No. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the habit of some but rather encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to encourage one another to love and to good works. That's why we come together. That's why we ought to come together. John finishes that statement. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's what these new converts in Antioch did. They left us a good example. They helped others who were in need. Aren't you glad that God, when He saw us in our need, saw us in our wretched state, saw us, saw us bound for destruction, that He sent His only Son to die on the cross so that we might live. So that we might have eternal life. So that we might know Him. So that we might be where He is. Oh, what a gracious God. What a benevolent God. And if you're a Christian, you want to be like your Father. You want to be like your Lord, your Savior. And if you don't, if you don't care about others, the Bible tells us, that means you don't really have the love of God in you. And if you don't have the love of God in you, you're not of His. Now, as I said, these things aren't in us perfectly. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're to grow in our love for God and for one another. We're to stir that love up. Stir up love and good works among yourselves. Make sure that it's a tangible love. A love that really does something. Not just as well wishes. Not a sentimental feeling. And see, a lot of people mistake that. Why? You don't have these sentimental feelings. Well, 
not all about sentimental feelings. It's about action. It's about what you do, how you treat them, what you're willing to do for them. Well, we've got many ways and examples we could show our love to the brethren. May we take this example and show it. And if there's a time of need of giving, we ought to give. And I believe you do. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Do good to all men, especially, the Bible says, the household of faith. It's not to leave out others, but you've got to at least begin at home with your own Christian family. Help those. Bless those who are in need. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven,